Well, at this time, we'll now uh, transition uh, into this morning's message. And so if you have your Bible with you, I would invite you to turn to Exodus 14. We are going to be reading chapter, or excuse me, verses uh, 10 through 31. So Exodus 14, verses 10 through 31. This is God's word. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we have said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. The Lord said to Moses, or excuse, yes, the Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, and the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them, and I will get the glory over Pharaoh and all the hosts, his chariots and his horsemen, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen." Then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them, and the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided, and the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right and on their left. The Egyptians pursued them and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen, and in the, wa- and in the morning Watch the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud look down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen. Of all the hosts of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, and the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power of the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant, Moses. Let's pray together. 
Heavenly Father, as we turn now to hear your word preached, we ask, Lord, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts, Lord, would be pleasing and acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In your son's name, Jesus Christ, amen. Who am I? Who am I? This is probably one of the most popular questions our culture likes to ask itself these days. You and I are very much big fans of this question. We very much like this topic of identity and figuring out who it is that we are. And I don't think uh, any other age or any other people group in centuries past have really wrestled with this question of identity more than we have ourselves. And when we look out into our modern American society, I think we can see quite clearly that our culture has two ways of going about answering that question, or two methods or two philosophies of answering that identity question, who am I? The first method is to just simply declare who you are. This is a very American approach. You are whoever you feel like you are. You are whoever you say you are, and no one has the right to disagree with you. No one has the right to impose any sort of identity upon you that you yourself would not first say. And this school of self-identification, this understanding that identity arises from within, and it's something that can be self-declared and self-determined, it carries with it this element of fluidity. Right? You can be one person one day, and you can be another person the next day. It just depends on how you're feeling that day. Your identity is limitless in this way. All right, that's the heart of every Disney movie from the past 30-plus years. Though the haters may try to keep you down, you are who you say you are. You can be whoever you want to be, right? That's the common movie formula. But interestingly enough, even despite this method, we continue to see folks truly struggle to really know who it is that they are. Even though our culture has said you can be whoever you want to be, whoever you choose to be, we still continue to see people truly struggling to figure out who they are, to figure out how they feel and who they want to be. If you don't believe me, just think of all of the personality tests you might have taken throughout the years. Right? Myers-Briggs, Strength Finder, DISC, or now uh, the very popular Enneagram. I've had uh, quite a few friends. They've become quite uh, infatuated with uh, Enneagram, and, and I think they've, I've never taken it personally, but they've said I'm, I'm numbers uh, one through eight. I've gotten different uh, numbers, but I've never gotten nine. I don't know what that means, but... I'm not saying that personality tests like Myers-Briggs or StrengthFinder or Enneagram, that they don't have their place or they don't have their utility, but just to make the simple point that you and I very much tend to become infatuated 
with anything and everything that might tell us just a little something about who we are, and that might just tell us just a little bit about the kind of person we've been made to be. I think that that's ultimately because when we treat identity as though it, it, it exists or develops in a vacuum, as though our identity is formed without any regard for our family or our community or even without God himself, the truth is that you will struggle. You will struggle to know who you are. Paradoxically, on the one hand, We've done a very good job in convincing ourselves into thinking that we don't need anyone's help in answering that question, and yet on the other hand, we cling to anything and everything that might give us just a little hint on the inside of who we are. That's the paradox. That's this tension that we currently live in. As much as we might want to give ourselves our own name, There is something inside of us deep down that knows that names are something that have to be given, that names are things that come to us from the outside, and we can't conjure it up on our own. And I don't want to get too existential here or too philosophical, but I I think it's probably good to ask that question from time to time. And how you might answer that question. Who are you? Who are you? What are those first things that come to mind? What's first in that series of identifiers? Is it your your Myers-Briggs letters? Is it your Enneagram number? Is it your, your job? Is it your past job? Is it your marital status? Is it your parenting? Is it your sexuality? Is it your race? Your gender? Your hobbies? Is it your money? Or lack thereof? Is it where you came from or what sports team you like? What is it that makes you who you are? Well, for the people of Israel, this story that we just read, the story of the Exodus, of these people who are being delivered from the Egyptians by going through the Red Sea, this event, this moment, was the chief identifier for these people. This moment would come to identify the people of Israel. This was the pivotal event that birthed the nation. Right? It took this clan, this people this, of, of, of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, this family that went into Egypt just 400 years previous. And they grew up there and they, and they populated. But then, this moment, it took them out of slavery. And it brought them into freedom. They were a people in bondage. But now they are destined for the promised land. 
And this event, this passing through this Red Sea, we come to find that this becomes the constant reprise in the Old Testament. This becomes the, the constant thing that is repeated in the ears of the Israelites because God wanted them to know who they were. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Right? I tried to figure out how many times this was referred to earlier this week in the Old Testament, and I couldn't do it. It is constant, constantly referred back to constantly look back on. It was rehashed in their feasts. It was repeated again and again in their psalms. They sang of this great event. It was set before them again and again because this event of salvation was very much their identity. Who were the Israelites? They were the people who were delivered through the Red Sea. And what's interesting is that the New Testament actually calls this moment a baptism. Paul, in 1 Corinthians 10, he says this, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Now, there's a lot of things there that, that are very interesting and that, and that could be said. Uh, but for our purposes, I want us to see this story of, of Exodus 14, the story of these people being delivered through the Red Sea. I want us to see this passing through the waters the same way the New Testament sees it, which is as a baptism. A whole nation was baptized into the Red Sea. And what that means then is that baptism is not a New Testament idea, but rather baptism is in fact an Old Testament idea that the New Testament just simply picks up and carries on. And we actually see this uh, Elsewhere, there were in fact earlier baptisms than this in the Old Testament, right? Noah and the ark and the flood. Peter calls this in 1 Peter 3 a baptism. Or even at the beginning of creation, it's interesting because we see the Holy Spirit hovering over the waters and bringing forth life through the means of the water by the Word of God. And so this, too, it prefigures baptism. But I want us to hone in and focus on this morning is this baptism that we see here in the Red Sea, because I think that it gives us one of the clearest pictures of this New Testament sacrament. If you remember, we've been uh, in this sermon series, we're, we're asking, uh, what is the church as we prepare to move towards relaunch? And so we're just kind of going over some of these uh, fundamentals. And that first week, we talked about the gospel and how this message is life to the church, not just at conversion, but it continues to give life to believers. And then we talked about preaching and how preaching is, is how God has, has chosen to nourish and to feed his people. 
And then last week we talked about the Lord's Supper and how the Lord's Supper is how God also nourishes and feeds his people so that you can see Jesus. Well, now this week we're talking about baptism. And, and for a moment I thought, oh, like, you know, last week we took the Lord's Supper, so it was kind of fitting. Maybe I should, shouldn't talk about baptism because we're not baptizing anybody. Uh, but many of you have been baptized. And so the question is, do you know what it is that has happened to you? Do you know and understand your own baptism? And so there's a lot that can be said about this topic, but the main point I want us to see today in this story is this. Baptism is something that God does for you. Baptism is something that God does for you. I think there's been a lot of confusion over this point. It's common for us to think about baptism today in the same way we think about identity. Right? We think about our baptisms as, as this sort of uh, this thing that we do for God. It's this, this self-declaration Right? That you are, in fact, a follower of Jesus. That you're, you might have been a believer, but if you're really serious, then you'll be baptized. We treat baptism as a choice. It's our own self-declaration that we are followers of Jesus. It's the way we exemplify and showcase our faith. That's how we come, have come to think about baptism. That's how I came to be baptized. When I was baptized in eighth grade, that's exactly what I thought I was doing. It was my own public declaration. But what I want us to see this morning is that like our identity, that's not at all how baptism works. That's not what baptism is meant for. It's, it's not meant to be something that you do for God, and it's not meant to be something that you say about God and your commitment to Him. But rather, baptism is something that God says about you. Baptism, your baptism, is something that God has said about you and His commitment to you. And I think we see that quite clearly here in our passage. But I also think that we see quite clearly how it is that you and I do in fact come to salvation. And that is kicking and screaming. Israel had come to the shores of the Red Sea. They had just witnessed God in Egypt squeeze Pharaoh with the ten plagues. Finally, bringing Pharaoh to his knees and releasing the people. They have just witnessed God work all of his wonders over them. He, and, and he even did what he said he would do. As they left Egypt, the Egyptians were so happy to see them go. They lavished them with gold and silver and clothing, and they were the conquerors. They plundered the Egyptians. And these people followed God out into the wilderness, and, and they followed this pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. God himself led them into the wilderness through this strange thing. And he led them right to the shores of the Red Sea. 
And we're told at the beginning of this chapter, we didn't read this section, uh, but that God did this purposefully in order to arouse Pharaoh to come and to pursue them and to go out after them. Because Israel's enemy still needed to be destroyed. And so Pharaoh pursues and he meets them on the banks. And how do the people respond? Kicking and screaming. You think that God might have earned a little rapport with this group, that he had shown himself that he could, in fact, be, be trusted. But what do they say to Moses? In verse 10, when Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there were no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. This is the people's declaration. This is how the people responded. God came to them from the very beginning and he said, I see you and I know you and I know your pain and I know that you're suffering and I will save you. I will deliver you. I will conquer your enemies and I will move you into a land that you can call your own. And right from the very beginning, the people, as they recall and restate here, the people say, no thank you. No thanks. I'm good. Just leave me alone Leave me where you found me, that I may serve my oppressors. This is how these people came to their salvation. This is how these people came to their baptism. It wasn't full of vigor. It wasn't full of commitment or a self-declaration of faithfulness. It wasn't with some grand stake-in-the-ground testimony as a follower of Yahweh, but they came to it like a child. They came to their salvation and to their baptism like a child, kicking and screaming and telling God to leave them alone. But how does God respond to them? He doesn't turn away. He doesn't change his mind. He doesn't ask them to rededicate themselves to him. He doesn't even argue with them. He just tells them to be quiet. In verse 13, Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm. And see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You have only to be silent. 
Be quiet. Stop talking. You don't bring a single thing to this party. You don't contribute anything to your salvation. You don't contribute a single thing, and you will not contribute a single thing. Your salvation is 100% on me. And the only thing I need for you to do is to do nothing. And in the next scene, Moses comes to God to relay the words of the people, and, and I just love God's response. He says, why do you cry to me? Go cut the river in half. Go lead those people through it. And when they are finally safe on the other side, I want you to drown the Egyptians in it. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen of all the hosts and Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right and on their left. And then the story concludes. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. And so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Here we see a beautiful picture of salvation. Here we see a beautiful picture of baptism. The New Testament refers to this moment, this passing through the Red Sea, as Israel's baptism. And there's nothing, and there is something important here that I want us to note in order for us to understand our own baptisms so that we can note the same thing concerning ours. Baptism, in Scripture, it always carries with it these two elements. It always carries with it these two elements. In baptism, you always have salvation, but you also always have judgment. Baptism, you have life and you also have death. Right? Noah and the ark, what I had mentioned earlier on, what Peter calls a baptism. What do you see here? We see the salvation of Noah and his family through the waters. But what were the waters? They were waters of judgment for the rest of the world. And here in our passage in Exodus, we see salvation For Israel, as they pass through the waters of the Red Sea, but what do we also see? That these waters were also waters of judgment and death for the Egyptians. And in the New Testament, when Jesus went to the cross, which he himself referred to as a baptism, when he told his apostles, can you drink the cup that I drink? Or can you be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? It's interesting there. We see Lord's Supper and we see baptism. In that baptism, we see these same two things. 
What is this moment of Jesus dying on the cross, what is judgment and death for Jesus is life and salvation for you. That's what was happening in Jesus' baptism on the cross, a baptism by fire. This was the sign that God had given to Noah. This was the sign that God had given to Moses and the Israelites. And this is the same sign that God has given to you. In your own baptism, we see God's loving hand applying that work of Christ to you. In your baptism, we see God uniting you to Christ and uniting you to a death like Christ's in order that you might be also united to a resurrection like His. This is what is signaled in your baptism. This is what is sealed to you in your baptism. That you do in fact belong to God. That your old self has died. And that you are in fact a new creation. Look at how Paul talks about baptism in Romans. Paul, he's been responding up to this point in Romans to these, these hypothetical naysayers. Right, these people that say uh, the gospel is too much grace. If you preach too much grace, then people will say, well, then won't people sin all the more? But Paul, he answers that conclusion or that, that rebuttal, and he doesn't try to turn down grace. Paul doesn't try to apologize for it. He doesn't try to say, yes, of course the gospel's true, but you know what? Also, yes, I get what you're saying. The law is also true, and, and, and we're, of course we're called to, to, to keep that. No, Paul, he doesn't say that. Paul just says, what are you talking about? Your question doesn't even make sense. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. So Paul's answer to that question is you've been baptized. You died. You've been united to Christ's death. And then watch watch this. Watch Paul slip into this this sort of language of slavery and freedom as though he, he had Exodus in mind. Just the very next verse, he says, We know that the old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Just like Israel very much died to the Egyptians that day on the shores of the Red Sea, 
so have you died to sin. And just like Christ was raised, so too will you be raised up on the last day. That is what your baptism means. This is what God has done for you. This is what God says about you. And so in, in coming back to this topic of identity that we had, we had talked about at the beginning, and we'll, we'll close with this, in, in trying to answer that question, who are you? You know, Martin Luther, he had a very interesting answer to that question. Uh, and, and maybe before I say this, I should preface with, uh, you know, no surprise, Martin Luther was a Lutheran. Uh, and we are a Reformed church, and so for those of you who have grown up within the Reformed tradition, you might know that uh, our view of baptism and the sacraments, we, we understand the sacraments a little differently than our Lutheran brothers and sisters unapologetically, but we also, like our Lutheran brothers and sisters, very much affirm even though we disagree with how it works, we still very much affirm that baptism is a sacrament and is a grace. And so I think that what Martin Luther says and, he, and he, how he answers that question, I think that we can still very much say. So Martin Luther, he answers that question. He, he, he said that, that he, when the devil would come to him, he, he would often talk about, about the devil. It's interesting. He said that when the devil would come to him and try to put him down and discourage him and tell him that he is a sinner and discourage the work that he was doing, Martin Luther would simply say, away with you, devil. I am baptized. I am baptized. That is who Martin Luther was. He was baptized. And dear Christ Community Church, that is who you are. You are baptized. You are the baptized. You are the ones with whom God has placed His sign and His seal for your confidence and for your comfort. You are the ones with whom God has said something about. For those of you who have received this sign, whether you received it when you were one month old or whether you received it when you were a hundred years old, God says the same thing about you that He says to Christ. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Your baptism is given to you to be viewed at through the eyes of faith. That when you remember your baptism, you don't view it as something that you did for God and with speculation and doubt and you're wondering, did I really mean it? Look to your baptism and be comforted. Have confidence that God has set His seal upon you. And God has said, this one is mine. You didn't do anything to earn this declaration. 
God doesn't say this to you because you said it first, but God says this to you because Christ has set this sign upon you by the Holy Spirit. And this is who you are, dear Christian. Believe your baptism. Amen? All right, let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we give thanks to you that you have saved us in Christ alone. Lord, and yet you have given us uh, gifts to help us see that reality of our salvation. You have given us this gift of baptism that we would know that these promises are for us and for our children. And Lord, please help us, Lord, to not look within, to not look uh, at ourselves and wonder how you feel about us. But help us to look to our baptism and to look to Christ and to have confidence that that is what you say about us. Lord, help us to walk this, uh, the rest of this day, the Sabbath rest, uh, with a heart filled with joy uh, as we continue to enjoy this rest which you have given. In your son's name, amen.